coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. It's not just about avoiding the worst things, but it's about actually going to the things that we actually want, which is difficult because we have to be able to be creative and think about what it is that we want and have intentionality behind that. So those two things came together to help me think about a different way of seeing tomorrow and kind of got me into this kind of, again, the, the term that I don't love, but this kind of classic idea of futuring or being a futurist. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 177 of Passion Struck. Ranked this week by Apple is one of the top five most popular alternative health podcasts. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, welcome. If you'd like to introduce this to a friend or family member, and we so appreciate it when you do that, we now have episode starter packs both on Spotify and on the Passion Struck website, which are collected of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into topics to make it so much easier for a new listener to get acquainted with everything that we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And in case you missed my interview from earlier in the week, it featured Dr. Eilat Fishback, who's a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, an expert on the science of motivation, and we discuss her new book, Get It Done. And in case you missed my episodes from last week, they featured Dr. Valerie Young, who is the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute and the leading authority on the topic worldwide. We also had on Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, who is a worldwide expert on reverse aging, epigenetics, and DNA methylation. And she talks about how you can reverse your own bioage and increase your health span. And lastly, we had on a very important interview with Rabbi Evremi Zippel, who talks about the 10-year period of child abuse that he underwent, the consequences from it, and how it has now transformed his life into one of advocacy. You don't want to miss any of them. And if you like today's episode or any of the other ones I've mentioned, we so appreciate it when you give us a five-star rating or review. They go so far in helping promote this podcast and making it more popular so others can learn themselves how to grow more intentional in their life. And that's a great lead-in to today's discussion because what we're going to discuss today is absolutely what this podcast is all about. How do you create an intentional life? And we're going to do that by discussing it through the lens of our upcoming guest's new book, Long Path. But before we get into that, let me introduce our guest to you. Ari Wallach is a futurist and the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, which focuses on the thinking and behaviors that will positively impact 
future generations. As adjunct associate professor at the Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, he lectured on innovation, AI, as well as the futures of public policy. Ari's TED Talk on the Long Path Mindset has been viewed over 2.6 million times. He has written for outlets like the BBC and Wired and hosted Fast Companies, Fact Co. Futures with Ari Wallach. Today, we do a deep dive into his brand new book, which launched earlier this week, titled Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors of Our Future Needs. And in our discussion, we go into what it means to be a futurist and why it's a title that Ari doesn't really care for, what Ari means when he says short-termism, what are the foundational principles of the Long Path philosophy, what he means by transgenerational empathy, what he describes as future thinking and telos and goal awareness. We provide a few perspectives of Long Path principles that are at work today, what stands in the way of having long path working, and what is the payoff for planning for a future we won't be around to see. We also go into a few quick changes that the listeners of today's podcast can make immediately to shift their own thinking. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited for this interview with Ari Wallach on the Passion Struck podcast. Welcome. Ah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Ari, I just wanted to say congratulations on the release of your book. What a masterpiece you have written. And I love that you call it your lifelong calling. So congratulations on that. And for the viewers of this on YouTube, we will make sure that we put a picture of it so people can see its amazing cover. Thank you. From listening to some of the other podcasts you've done, I found the story of your parents' background very interesting and how it shaped you into who you are today. Can you talk a little bit about that and why your father's story looms so large in your life? Yeah, of course, John. When most people are asked kind of for their background, they almost always start with their own birthday. Like I was born in this year. And then you kind of move forward and you'll see this theme play out as we talk about the book and about Long Path. So when people ask me about like my background, I always start really in 1922, which I'm not obviously that old. I'm not hundred years old. 1922 was when my father was born in a kind of medium-sized village in Poland. It's now actually part of Belarus. And he was 17 years old when World War II started, and he had some older brothers and younger sisters, and obviously, and obviously his parents. And within the first week of World War II, he lost his two older brothers to, to the front lines as Germany kind of blitzkrieged through Poland. Within a couple of months, they had kind of taken all the Jews in this very large city and kind of compacted them into a ghetto, which is what, what the Nazi regime did. And in that, very quickly, he kind of lost his mother and his sister. They went to labor camps and they, they later perished in Auschwitz. So that was kind of a, a big part of the story of my life and obviously my father's. But what ended up happening was his father was killed in front of him, actually, in this very kind of like atrocious, weird thing that the Nazis did. And within a week, he and his brother basically escaped the ghetto and he joined the Jewish underground. So for two and a half years, he lived in the forests of Poland and Instead of fleeing, and there wasn't many places to actually flee, he actually stayed and fought. And after World War II, he was a kind of off-the-books Nazi hunter and kind of made his way through Europe, playing semi-professional soccer and doing business and a whole bunch of other stuff to Cuba. Now, he was in Cuba through the revolution, 
He was one of the few people who spoke fluent Spanish and Russian. And once Castro realized that my father was not going to kind of be a partner in, in Castro's policies, he kind of kicked him out and he sent him on a, it was a round trip ticket, but he was told never to return to, to Mexico. Meanwhile, my mother was born 1945, kind of classic baby boomer. And she was an artist living in the Bay Area, working with Bill Graham and Janis Joplin and the dead and doing the kind of the posters and, and, and whatnot for concerts. And she eventually uh, became a student of Buckminster Fuller, kind of this renowned architect and classic kind of futurist who created the geodesic dome, came up with all sorts of great ideas. And he said to her at one point, listen, you, the way you think and the way you're kind of designing and doing your art is amazing, but I want you to kind of expand your horizons. So she ended up doing through UCLA, she did kind of a study abroad program, which was kind of rare in the late 60s for, for folks to do that. And in Mexico City, she studied kind of pre-industrial Mayan architecture and city planning. And so it's kind of like, how do we, even we think of these things as very modern things, but even back then, thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, they were thinking about how do we actually bring people together to maximize kind of flourishing. And so it's in Mexico that my parents met. So it was kind of this mashup of my mom, who was kind of raised an artist, kind of futurist. So she was always thinking about how we got to this point, what is the point, and what do the next several hundred years look like? And my dad came from a kind of a, a very much kind of a, a darker past and upbringing and was very much kind of in the present. And it was less, how do we get to a point that we want to get to? And how do we avoid having what happened to him in, in the 40s? So I kind of grew up in this really interesting home where we were always kind of talking about issues, but always across like a hundred to 150 year time span, going back to the 1920s, all the way out to the 2120s. Yeah, it's interesting. Part of my family is from Poland. And if people don't understand what happened to them around World War II, it's pretty devastating because on one side, you had the atrocities that were committed by the Germans, but on the other side, it wasn't any better with the atrocities that were committed by the Russians. So yeah. they really got snagged in the middle. Yeah. Um, well, one of the quotes that you had in the book is actually from your father who said, if you forget the past, you don't have a future. What happens tomorrow started yesterday. And I wanted to bring that up because you said it altered your conception of time. How so? Folks like me who are considered futurists, and we'll get into that, we'll get into the sickiness of that term later, tend to think about tomorrow from the, from the vantage point of today, like right now, what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. But we really kind of do it where we're standing here in the present moment looking forward. And what my dad taught me was that actual sense of time and kind of reverberations throughout time is totally false. And the bias is kind of a presentist bias that what's happening now somehow kind of exists in a vacuum. But the reality is, who we are as individuals, who we are as countries, and who we are really as a species has decades, if not centuries, and really millennia kind of background to it that got us to this point. So from a kind of an evolutionary perspective, evolutionary biological perspective, when I hear a loud noise, which I did earlier, my first instinct was to kind of turn around and see if there was danger coming. That The process that allowed that to happen goes back hundreds of thousands of years. At the same time, and I write about this in the book, my, my wife and I kind of got into this argument about, it was a silly argument, and, and you'll read more about it in the book, kind of a how she had put the frozen goods in with the non-frozen goods from Trader Joe's. And I kind of snapped and got mad when she did that. 
my snapping about that had to do a lot with my relationship with my father and his mother and all these other things. So the fact of the matter is who we are at any given point and how we react for better, or for worse, and hopefully for the better. And that's kind of many of the things that I work on and talk about in the book is based on things that happened a long time ago, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years, sometimes decades, it's intergenerational. And sometimes it's something to happen to you when you were five years old. But this idea that the future is this blank slate based on where we are today is just totally false. That's what that quote, that's what I learned from a very early age from my father. Okay, and continuing down this thread, so you are a futurist today. I've heard it's something in a way of a title that you don't really care for, but was there a defining event that created your journey to becoming one? I think there was a couple of defining events and, and, and I'll hit a couple of them. Part of it, again, for better or for worse, was consistently hearing these stories about World War II from my dad, right? And so I would come home in middle school or high school and whereas maybe most parents, or this will sound like a broad sweeping cliche, like a dad would be watching sports or something else on TV. My dad was watching World War II movies, right? The black and white ones. Remember those from the History Channel? But he wasn't watching them as history. It was almost like he was watching videos of his own being raised and, and trying to grapple with what happened because he only understood World War II through a very narrow vision field, which was his actually lived experience. And this actually created much larger context. And I remember a series of conversations with him where, and the quote that we just talked about was in one of those conversations where he kept saying, we heard the stories in the 1930s about this kind of rising authoritarian figure in Germany. We heard these things that were happening, but we didn't do anything. No one thought that future could happen. Like the people would kind of talk about it, but no one would actually activate on it because it was, it was out of the realm of the possible. And so I remember in those early conversations thinking, why is it that we get stuck on this kind of official future of what can happen? And we never see these kind of black swan events very early on. So I think those early conversations kind of set the tone for my thinking more critically and serious about what could happen. So kind of the classic scenario planning that we know as futurists. And then the next event was when I was in the third grade, I broke my femur. And back then they didn't do surgery like they do now. So I spent two and a half months in traction in a hospital bed, followed by two and a half months in a body cast at home. So that's a long time to kind of sit there and think. There was no internet. We didn't really watch TV. And so these books had just come out called time machine novels. They were kind of like choose your own adventure. But instead of all happening at one time, these books, these time, this time machine series, about 30 books, would always be in a historical period, World War II, the age of the samurai. And you would kind of go back and forth in time, but kind of choose different pathways. And I think it was reading every single one of those books in the set that got me thinking about time and time differently in different pathways. And I think those are kind of the two big events that got me thinking, huh, thinking about tomorrow in different ways and helping people and societies and organizations. I wasn't thinking of this in third grade is something that speaks to me because it's also very creative. And so on the one hand, from my dad's side, I was kind of thinking like, how do we prevent these worst things from happening, right? Because that's really what I got from my dad, right? Like, how do we go back and think, okay, 1933, these things were happening. How do we see these things so we can bend us towards the positive? 
from my mother's side as an artist and kind of as a radical optimist, it's not just about avoiding the worst things, but it's about actually going to the things that we actually want, which is difficult because we have to be able to be creative and think about what it is that we want and have intentionality behind that. So those two things came together to help me think about a different way of seeing tomorrow and kind of got me into this kind of, again, the, the term that I don't love, but this kind of classic idea of futuring or being a futurist. Well, I like that you brought up the time machine because I actually have that first book. And I also have the original edition of a comic book, which was the time machine as well. Yeah. So many things that I think we can learn from that series, as you've just pointed out. So in the book, you have a chapter that talks about two gardeners that had a lot of influence on you. And it was interesting for me because in my upcoming book, I have a chapter that I titled Gardener Leadership. Hmm. But I think it's important that we use this as an example to set up the rest of the interview, because this podcast is all about how do you live an intentional life, which is what a long path mindset is all about. We're going to talk a lot more about that. But I was hoping maybe you could introduce it through this lens of these two different gardeners in your life. In a book, I talk about in middle school, there was the gardener who kind of kept the grounds. Would, and I don't mean to make light of that. I don't know if he's a neighbor or whatever it was. Whenever he would kind of mow the big sock, this is kind of classic Bay Area, California schools with the big couple, couple of soccer fields. And instead of kind of mowing them in a straight line, he would always kind of just kind of go willy nilly. He would do figure eights. He would do all sorts of things. And we were always like, and it, it was somewhat humorous, but it would be this like uneven field. So you'd be like kind of dribbling with the soccer ball in one inch grass and all of a sudden hit four inches and then back to one inch. And it was, there was never a pattern to it. And for whatever reason, he, he kept doing this for years. So there's that form of gardening. So patches of weed here, there, the other. And then Fast forward to just not that long ago, well, about 20 years ago, which is not just yesterday, I was given the opportunity to study under one of the kind of the lead, really master gardeners who had flown in from Kyoto, from the Royal Temple to San Diego, where I was taking a course on Japanese garden design. And it was both kind of larger tea garden design, but Ikiban and also bonsai. And it was in many ways the exact opposite, right? Instead of kind of being willy-nilly about how you garden, it's being very, very intentional down to almost like the pine needle on the bonsai branch of the small tree and what that represents. And so I talk about that in the book because the garden obviously becomes a kind of metaphor for our mind. So we have this idea, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that even our inner voice that we hear all the time is just kind of just randomly there and it has our best interest in mind. But that also has a, a long history, the, the kind of inner voice and the, the messaging that we give ourselves. And so in the book, I say, look, if you want to think about and develop a strategy for tomorrow that you want to see manifest, you have to decide whether or not you want to be the willy nilly gardener or if you want to be like the master gardener. Do you want to actually cultivate with intentionality how you think and see the world in a proper way? A, because it leads to a better present, but B, and in some ways kind of where my interest very much so is, is how does this help you think about tomorrow and plan for the future in a way that's less about being kind of short-termistic and reactionary and much more towards your own individual long-term flourishing? Really importantly, how does that set up future generations as well? We'll be right back to my interview with Ari Wallach. Need to supercharge your hiring? 
You need a super hiring partner. You need Indeed, which is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. And one of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because we all know we have pressing schedules and this simplifies the hiring process so much. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now back to my interview with Ari Wallach. Well, I think you might like this story. I know at one point, you considered going to West Point. You ended up going to Berkeley instead. Talk yeah. about a complete paradigm shift. Flip, yeah. <laughs> but I ended up going to the Naval Academy. But as I was reading Grit by Angela Duckworth, yep. she starts the whole book out about talking about West Point. And she uses it as the core example that it was the combination of perseverance and passion that got these cadets to graduation and beyond. And as I contemplated that and I thought about my own experience and talked to some of my classmates. Yes, grit was an extremely important part of it, but I think the one missing ingredient that she really missed was intentionality mm -hmm. because you can have as much grit as you want, but if you're not intentional about how you're deploying it, you're not going to get to where you want to be. 100%. And I think this whole analogy of the gardener is an important one because if you're a good gardener, you have to be intentional about your choices that you're making, the activities you're doing and everything that you're doing, or you're not going to cultivate anything. So I thought this example was a really good one to now introduce this concept of long path and what a long path mindset is. So I was hoping you could explain that and what some of the guiding principles are. For sure. And I'll dovetail a little bit off of this kind of this gardening, because anyone who's garden knows that you have some big choices to make, specifically when you're planting anything perennial. So anything that's going to keep coming back year after year. So I live in the Northeast outside New York City. So we see kind of plants come up and go down and come up and go down during the winter. And it was that way of thinking we should think about kind of perennial intentionality, not just in our own life, but also in the lifespans to continue, right? And the generations to follow. And so that in many ways was where the long path and how the long path mindset was developed. For 20 years, I've been working with large organizations, the UN, the White House, State Department, Fortune 100 companies, helping them think about the future. What I found is two things happened over the past several years. One, when they wanted to talk about tomorrow, it went from being, let's talk 20 years out, Ari, to let's talk six months out. So I saw this exponential rise of short-termistic thinking, and I was trying to figure out, okay, Short-termism is, as a human, we're hardwired for it. I mentioned this earlier. If, if John and Ari are walking to the Serengeti and a large animal with big teeth comes after us, you and I don't sit down and have a long dialogue. We react and we do something about it, right? So we want 
that fight or flight response that's kind of in the amygdala, it's okay. It's what got us here. And it's something that we want to, we want to be able to leverage. The problem is when it becomes hyperactivated. So why does it become hyperactivated? Well, mostly when we live in a kind of perpetual state, either of fear or anxiety. Now, what brings that about? So yes, a lot of people talk about social media and technology that obviously plays a role in kind of triggering that cortisol response, that constant ampness. But I make the argument in the book that what we're going through right now, especially kind of in the global North, in the West, is what I call an intertidal. So intertidals are these kind of moments between what was and what will be. And so in our personal life, we have intertidals all the time when we go through kind of significant life transitions and moments, the, the passing of a relationship or the passing of a parent, for instance. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passionstruck. We're going through that at a kind of civilizational level. And what, what that means is the old stories and narratives about how the world works no longer work for us. And so specifically, this intertidal is the transition out of probably about four to 500 years of where we've been as a society in terms of how we think about how the world works. So that's obviously coming from the Renaissance, it's the Enlightenment, it's the rise of industrialization, which means at its core, if you break down individual components, if you take a complex system and you break it down to individual pieces, it'll tell you how it works. But any doctor or biologist or someone who really thinks about leadership will tell you that's not actually how the world works. So what I found was we're in this intertidal moment, kind of a breakdown of trust, rapid climate change, people not being sure about what tomorrow is going to look and feel like. And so that leads to kind of a heightened anxiety. And so in working with clients and organizations and different folks, I realized we needed a framework to help us kind of navigate this intertidal. But the best way of thinking about a framework is really through a mindset, which is kind of the set of assumptions that we operate and go through the world with. And so the genesis of Longpath was, as a strategist, was thinking like, okay, we have this problem. We're in an intertidal. We want to successfully navigate it. How are we going to do that? Mindset 
thinking, if you will, is the best way to do that. Where Long Path came from, if we think about Long Path as almost an applied mindset to help leaders and everyone basically live with intentionality in our current moment in a way that doesn't just help Ari and John in this current moment, but from a kind of a normative and an ethical perspective, help us set up future generations. Why? Because A, they need all of our help right now because they can't vote because they're not here. And they can't take action. So we need to do it on their behalf. But B, potentially even more importantly, acting in such a way that has high regard for future generations, which could be hundreds of billions, if not trillions of homo sapiens over the next 10, 20, 30, 000, hundreds of thousands of years, actually gives intentionality to the moment right now. So it's no longer about how Ari makes it through his day for Ari or how John makes it through his day for John. It's how do we do that in such a way that lives in alignment with future generations, gives us a sense of purpose and meaning, right? Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, right? How do people make it through traumatic moments? You obviously wrote about World War II and the Holocaust. He said he found, and this is the basis of his logotherapy, was that people who had something to live for were the ones who were able to flourish in the moment. And so Long Path gives us something to kind of live for that's beyond ourselves, which is how do we ensure future generations flourish? So that's, that's the background on Long Path. Now, what are the three main components of it? So the three components are futures thinking, so that's future with an S, transgenerational empathy, which can have a, which is a, almost like a therapeutic component, and telos thinking, which means ultimate aim and goal. And so those three pillars, when you work with them and do the work, and this is kind of the middle section of the book, are what kind of shifts you from a short-term reactionary mindset to a long path mindset. Does that, does that all make sense so far? Yep, it all makes sense. So- Let's start with futures thinking. So more often than not, and this goes to why I have issues with the term futurist, because when you say, oh, I talked to a futurist, I'm a futurist, people have this idea that what the futurist is going to do is prognosticate or predict what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a singular point we're heading towards. So once every couple of days, I get invited to be on a panel, the future of X, the future of cars, the future of love, the future of money, the future... But it's always in the singular, as if there's only one future. Now, what that does is it creates a kind of aperture cone so that there's nothing else that you can do outside of what that official line is. That official future is what I talk about in the book. Now, there's a reason we all need an official future. To be totally open to anything happening tomorrow at an individual level, it's nice. It's like, oh, I, I could do this. I could do that. The future is full of possibility. At a societal level, it leads to kind of chaos. So there needs to be a story about where we're heading. But what often happens is we get locked into that story because it becomes the future in the singular. And anything outside of that narrative or that story is seen as crazy, right? Like it's just a great example. This seems like a small example, but I remember three years ago, I was talking uh, to a large organization about, well, we need more work from home. We need more flexibility. We need to be able to do more kind of Zooming. And they're like, no, we don't do that. We need everyone in the office five days a week and that's all we'll ever do. And then we saw it get, rad obviously that get radically disrupted. And lo and behold, there was now a different future about what could happen, but we were so kind of cognitively locked. So futures thinking is an acknowledgement. There are different probable futures that we can go towards, but that it kind of opens up this cone. It's called a Voros cone. It's in the book about different directions that we could go into. Now, it doesn't mean we can go willy-nilly and decide, well, in this futures landscape, 
John and Ari are going to live a castle in the sky. And that's the futures that we want. Like potentially, and that may be out, that starts to get kind of improbably out of the cone. So what we do is to kind of allow people to think about different futures is we call them megatrends. So these are these big tectonic shifts that are happening kind of below the surface, mostly almost always human-made. They're decades in the making, and they're going to kind of impact how we move forward. So you can kind of almost think about them as guardrails. So whatever John and Ari think about different futures for ourselves and society, we have to recognize these, these megatrends. So at, at longpath.org forward slash megatrends, we have the 21 megatrends that we kind of use to help us think about different futures and kind of stay in that cone. So that, that's pillar one. And I talk about that in the book. And even that simple idea of future versus futures, all of a sudden starts to kind of shift how you think we can be in this moment and how and all of a sudden I just, even, even at that level, when I talk to folks, they start to think kind of obviously very differently. Then the, the, the core of the book is really around transgenerational empathy and what you and I were talking about earlier, which is how do we connect with the past, right? Our ancestors, and it could be our parents, but it could go back tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it's empathy for them. How do we have self-empathy in the moment? So self-compassion. And then the final is how do we have empathy for future generations? And it's both the how and the why is the core of long path. Because what it does is it moves us out of having a lifespan bias of just like, how does John live with intentionality from birth to death? That's like 99% of the books out there are just about John's birth to death or Ari's birth to death. The argument that I make is, while that's great, it starts to rob the future of the resources they need. And it actually takes the intentionality that we want to have in the moment working on our own behalf and their behalf out of the picture. So transgenerational empathy is a way of kind of connecting with the past, yourself in the present, in the future, that places you out of this lifespan bias and more into a much larger chain of being which then kind of removes this existential dread of, well, who am I and why am I here towards who are we and why are we here? It's not about, it's about spirituality or theology. It's about connecting to something much larger. And the final pillar of the long path mindset is telos, which means ultimate aim and goal. And the idea there, and this is, this comes, I mean, we, I'm sure we both did. I know I did sports. I did pole vaulting. You have to have an idea and a visualization of where is it that you want to get to. And you know this, it's kind of classic. And we talked about long path as being a way to navigate the intertidal, but navigate towards what, right? So Odysseus in the, in, in the Odyssey wanted to return to Penelope and Ithaca, right? Had an ultimate goal and destination in mind of how we got through this crazy Odyssey. If we as a society are going to positively navigate this intertidal moment, we have to have an idea and a vision of what is it we're trying to get to, but recognizing that Telos isn't where John gets to at the end of his life or where Ari gets to at the end of its life. It's something much more dynamic. It's not static. And it's for, and I have a little bit of a bias here, it's for Homo sapiens writ large over the next several thousand years. Now, I know that sounds very sci-fi, but if you think about it, so think about the year 4,000. It seems very, very far out there, but most of your listeners or viewers know about ancient Rome and the gladiators, and we've seen the movies. We're as close to the year 4020 AD as we are to the times of the Romans and the gladiators and the Colosseum. So even though we see movies about it, and it's kind of this historical going backwards, if you flip that, that's the year 4000. 
So the telos has to be something that is that, but goes even further than that. What I put out in the book is something very simple, which is human and planetary flourishing, which means a tomorrow better than today where everyone is able to have their needs met, not at the expense of others. So it sounds kind of pie in the sky, but in reality, it's something that we can do. Leaders do it all the time. People living with an intentional life do it all the time for themselves. What Longpath is saying is we can do it for ourselves and for these far off future generations. And it actually helps us in the present. Well, there are so many directions I can take what you just unpacked because there are a ton of questions I want to ask, but I'm going to start out by saying this, the whole concept of being passion struck really goes along the lines that you're talking about. I use the tagline, be better, live better, impact society. And the third one is the most important because what I'm really trying to get people to start thinking about is we are so individualistic in the way that we live our lives. And we need to be world centric mm -hmm. if we're going to change the different patterns and megatrends that are, are happening to us, which we'll discuss here in a bit. And two recent interviews I did on this show, and I'm just putting them out there for the listener to go back if you haven't heard them, are really good primers for today's discussion. One was with Jeff Walker who is someone I think are, you know, Jeff yep. is the former vice chairman of JP Morgan Chase, led their private equity group. But for the past number of years since retirement, he has dedicated his life to systems change and how we go about doing that to solve many of these issues. And the second one I would recommend people listen to is with Gene Olwang, who's the founding CEO of Virgin Unite, which is Sir Richard Branson's mm -hmm. philanthropic arm. And that one is really interesting because she talks about the elders, which some people might not know about, but it's a collection of very senior leaders who have kind of gotten to the point that their sole focus in life is fixated on how do we fix some of these societal issues. And then the B team, which is a bunch of CEOs from across the world who are really focused not only on quarterly revenue, but on how do we bring long lasting change to society. So both of those are two good ones. But I use that to open up this topic of shortism. And I wanted to do it through an example for me that's very personal. When I was a senior executive at Lowe's, which is a public company, the thing that I really loved about the Lowe's culture is everything was built on a very strategic long-term strategy. Mm -hmm. We were looking out five, 10, even many more years from that. And everything that we would do for the initiatives of today all had to be guided by where we wanted the company to be way, way in the distance future. So what I really liked about that culture was the capital expenditures we were making were mm -hmm. very long-term thought out. And then I happened to go to Dell. And at Dell, another public company about the same size, our strategy existed in the next quarter. I mean, we were barely looking out six months and I've never been in a culture, especially when you're leading the technology organization where so many projects were started and stopped for no apparent strategic reason. And it really showed me kind of a clear example on the importance of long time thinking, futuristic thinking versus the shortism that you bring up throughout the book and you've brought up earlier today. So long worded intro to this. 
But my question for you was, how do you recommend people shift their mental modes about the short term? I mean, it wasn't a long, it was a perfect intro, right? Because this is what we face all the time. We'll talk about the book. I know this sounds self-referential, but the book is called Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors, Our Future Needs, right? An antidote for short-termism. Carefully thought out all of that. What does it mean to think and act like a great ancestor, first and foremost? And it means that you're acting in accordance with the needs, and we know this from the, the Iroquois Confederacy, that there's this idea of seventh generation, right? Act as if though all of your actions will have, and think about the ramifications they will have on the next seven generations, right? So a lot of what's in Long Path is not necessarily new. It's my kind of study and understanding from a lot of different uh, wisdom traditions from around the world. And so from looking at those kind of wisdom traditions, shifting from a short-termistic to a long path, or we'd say long-term, but a long path mindset, first and foremost, is what I call the kind of the ABCs. So it's awareness, beliefs, and cultivate. And this goes to the kind of the gardening that we talked about earlier. So first and foremost, it's being aware that you're in that situation. It sounds silly, but first and foremost, kind of recognizing the role that short-termism plays in your life, keeping your daily life, how you parent, or how you're a partner, or how you are, are in business and work. And it's interesting, when I have these kind of conversations with, with leaders around the world, what I take for granted is that most people aren't kind of constantly scanning for short-termism in their life. But once you've heard this or you read the book, all of a sudden you'll see it kind of playing out everywhere. So it's just becoming first and foremost kind of aware of it. As, as you, you were able to see that between Lowe's and Dell, but most folks are kind of, we're so stuck in this presentist moment where kind of everything's happening all at once because of technology and this intertidal moment. It's like we live in a hall of mirrors we don't realize the role and impact short-termism plays, uh, specifically because we have a culture built around it, the quarterly earnings reports, uh, the fact that I get notification on an app if my daughter misses an assignment by 30 seconds and I get like almost every day updates on her work. We've moved into an overly kind of metricized world that amplifies kind of short-term behavior and thinking. So again, it's that awareness. The second is the beliefs. Are you willing to think differently and have a kind of, this is Dweck's work, a growth mindset that short-termism isn't all that. It has a role to play when John and Ari are being chased on the Serengeti, but it's not the default mode that we should be living our lives. So it's recognizing it and wanting to have a different belief towards that. And then the final is kind of cultivating that garden, cultivating that intentionality and that mindset. Now, the book is in many ways all about the C, cultivating that mindset. And so there's a series of kind of exercises, uh, almost a dozen of them in the book that really help you shift from short to long-term. And the way they're kind of placed throughout the book, it's a way to kind of say, okay, here's what's happening in the world. Here's what's happening in my life. Let's examine this. And let's think about kind of holding space for past Ari present Ari and future Ari. And then towards the end of the book, it's no longer just about me because first you have, to, you have to start with yourself, right? And then in the book, towards the end, we start talking about how do I cultivate space for thinking about ancestors writ large, those around us in the current moment and future generations that aren't Ari. And so to answer your question of how do we start that shift, the entire book is meant to kind of shift you, right? It's a, it's a relatively short book. People are reading about three hours. It's not meant to be the super dense. It's meant to kind of take you through a process 
that in and of itself becomes a framework of how you view the world. The short answer is read the book. The longer answer is as you run, and all the exercises in the book are based on research that's happened at Berkeley, Northeastern, and Stanford, and a bunch of other universities. So these aren't willy-nilly exercises. These are ones that I created based on kind of the leading edge of research on everything from temporal discounting. So for anyone in business knows, we often put a discount. We'd rather get a dollar now than $2 in the future. So because we discount the future, but we do that to the detriment of ourselves in the present. So we take the research, let's say in, in temporal discounting or mental time travel, and we apply it and make it part of the exercises of the book that help people create that shift. So again, this is all kind of based on neuroplasticity. We can actually change. It's not just kids who can think differently. It's us adults as well. So in the book, you kind of go through that process of creating that shift. Yes. And I wanted to perhaps take the audience through one of those exercises. As you said, you have a bunch of them, but I recently interviewed Dr. Casey Holmes, who was formerly a professor at UPenn. She's now at UCLA, but she has a new book coming out called The Happier Hour. And in that book, she talks about a eulogy exercise. You mentioned something similar in your book. Can you describe it and how a person could use it? Yeah. So we can talk about death at any point if you want to, because it's a part of the book, because part of what prevents us from thinking about futures beyond our own lifespan is we come up against the obvious roadblock that, or cognitive roadblock is that we have to actually reconcile and think about our death, right? Which is very difficult for most of us because in Western society, we do everything we can to push old age and death out of the room. And so we're kind of always in our perpetual twenties. So I recognize that even us going into this kind of eulogy exercise is difficult because we're, we live in a context that even doesn't even like to talk about it. And, and, I, and I talk more about why we don't like to talk about that in the book. In terms of this, and I, by the way, I use this all the time with leaders. I say, okay, if we are thinking about your obituary and one's own obituary, the first paragraph is going to be about who you were and kind of the classic thing. The second thing are those who you kind of left behind. The third is going to be about what you did in the world and how it changed the world. And so it's a very simple exercise in the book, which is kind of eulogizing your ventures. If you think about anything that you're working on, does it make it into that third paragraph? Yes or no? If it does, what was it that helped you put that? Why was that so important? And if it doesn't make it into that third paragraph, I don't mean necessarily the project you're working on this week, but the larger work that you're doing, if it doesn't make it into that, should you be doing that? Now, I recognize it's a privilege to even have that conversation when a vast majority of people on the planet are just like day to day, hour by hour. But if you're in a place of privilege where you can start to kind of think about this, are you working on something that should be in that? And if not, Maybe you should rethink the things that you're working on so that they make it in that third paragraph and your descendants who are reading it have a better understanding of why you did what you did and why it was important to them. And if you can't answer that in the affirmative, it's a good way of kind of checking yourself as to whether or not you should be doing it. Okay. Well, I have a great follow-on question to this. And I know your study of the Stoics, I think sure. similar to me and Epictetus said, Nothing great is created suddenly any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me you desire a fig, I answer you that there must be time. Let it first blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. And so my question looking at that quote is, how does taking this long path approach to life help us prioritize what truly matters, which you were just talking about, and recognize what doesn't? 
Such a great quote. Long Path, the book opens up with a, a similar story, right? It's about Honey. This is from the Talmud, Jewish Talmud. And Honey is walking down a path and sees an older gentleman planting a carob tree. And he says to him, you're old. Why are you planting this carob tree? This takes so long to actually bear fruit and take leave. Why would you do that? Why are you planting trees right now in your old age? And he says, well, when I was young, I rested and played in the shade of a carob tree and I ate from its fruit and someone planted this well before I was on the scene. So it's incumbent upon me to plant carob trees for the next generation. And so on the cover of the book is a cover of a small carob tree, right? As a, a one normally planted. And I asked kind of throughout this book, is your actions, is what you are doing planting carob trees or not? And there's something in the act of planting a tree that feels good for you in the present, but it's also kind of thinking about these future generations and the future writ large. And so when you, when you think about the question is, what comes to mind is when we come to a decision point that we have to make, is it planting a tree for the future? By the way, it doesn't have to be future generations. It can just be future you. It could be making those kind of investments that you talk about at Lowe's versus Dell. Or are you just chopping down trees? Are you not thinking about kind of future you and you're living so much in the present? Long path becomes a way of helping you make decisions. Is this going to help me and future generations live a more flourishing, intentional life or not? And so it becomes a way that when we're faced with these kind of Gordian knots, these very difficult choices, it helps us to contextualize these in a much broader time span. And then we can make those investments in other people and ourselves that yes, pay dividends down the road, but also pay dividends for us in the present. Because what it does is it to, to be able to plant that tree, that fig or carob, you have to have a certain kind of pro-social awareness of empathy and self-compassion that very much helps you in the present. So there's a little bit, there's a little bit of spinach in the brownie here. So when you're planting those trees and making those decisions, yes, you're helping the future and future you, but you're also getting something out of it in the present, right? We see people lower stress and up their oxytocin when they do things for other people, be it other people being their, their future self or other individuals. So you can make the decisions through this kind of framework or the strategic filter in a way that only adds kind of benefit intentionality to your life. Well, I think that's fantastic. And if the audience didn't understand what you were talking about with megatrends, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on them. When I think of megatrends, I think some of them are things such as food and water shortages demographic shifts to urbanization, this growing income equality and the decline of the middle class that we're seeing, impact of technology disruptions, climate change, et cetera. And then this huge rise of pandemics because we're infringing on environments now that we've never touched before, which is yeah. opening us up to lots of new diseases and other things. So this is all what you mentioned is this intertidal. And to me, I'm a big believer in social impact theory, which is that history repeats itself. Yep. And you mentioned earlier about going 400 years back. And I think about the time when we were back at the printing press and people at that time were mostly tradesmen. You had blacksmiths and et cetera. And I think we're going right back in that direction because we're entering this time where if people are not seeing the reality of it, 
400 to 700 million jobs are going to be displaced, Mm -hmm. which means you're going to have no other choice but to relearn and do it on a much more frequent basis. So I think what's happening to us now that is so different is you've got all these megatrends, but they're all colliding and it's creating these huge shifts and what you describe in the book as an earthquake. And so my whole thought process around this is how do we shift this mindset of individualism that is causing many of these megatrends to occur and has permeated society to one of transgenerational concern? And what are the steps that you outline to do that? Yeah, so when we... So all the megatrends you list are are many of the ones that we also you know think about, and and you are correct in that many of the megatrends. But by the way, megatrends are nece- not necessarily. Oh, we 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 should almost see them as in some ways somewhat neutral, right? Because they can be positive or negative. Increased urbanization could lead to a decreased carbon footprint as a society, but it also leads to other things. So they can they can go up and down in terms of of, of their impact. Your analysis is correct. The question which is how do we shift from a me culture to a we culture, right? It's like literally just literally switching the M upside down becomes a, is a W and your analysis is correct. And then, so what I want to add is is the historical component. Remember I talked earlier about the past 400 years, kind of us kind of breaking things down from very complex systems to their individual components. Well, that also happened in terms of where we put the priority as as a species in terms of how we function. So what that means is we over-indexed on hyper-individualism. We saw the society that we live in as not this kind of interconnected lattice, but much more as these individual parts called basically John's life, Ari's life, Sharon's life. And we broke down to this me culture, which in a sense is part of kind of the archetype of the best. It's rugged individualism. And by the way, for what it's worth, we needed to break the collective lattice that we had through the Middle Ages, especially in the global North and the West, was driven by the church. And I don't mean this as a kind of a theological critique, but as the ch- if you think of the church as like the all-consuming power structure for several hundred years in, in the West, what it meant was everything you did was on or for their behalf, and there was no individualism or no individual autonomy. And so the, the Enlightenment kind of broke that up and allowed us to be individual actors, which was great because then John could pursue his interests, Ari could pursue his interests. But what we lost when we threw, we threw the baby out with the bathwater was a collective sense of meaning and purpose. And so what you're arguing for, as I am too, is how do we still maintain individual agency, autonomy, and intentionality, but within a nested within this kind of uh, lattice or matrix of all of us working towards something bigger than just our own selves, right? And so the megatrends that we are looking at in many ways are manifestations of this hyper-individualized thinking, right? That's where these things came up from. Because I can tell you a lot of the megatrends that we're dealing with right now, if, if it was a society that was more focused on collective as opposed to individual solely individual flourishing, we wouldn't have so many of these negative knock-on effects. So the question is, as, as you said, if we're, we're in this intertidal moment and we're dealing with these megatrends, how do we have a mindset that shifts us from me to we? So in many ways, I think Long Path is answering. It's developing a sense of transgenerational empathy for not just 
past and future, but for the present. And part of part of empathy for the present is not just about yourself. So it's not just self-compassion and awareness for Ari or for John, but it's for those around us who are all going through this at the same time. And so what long path thinking and acting does, and in many ways kind of what you're getting at is living long path, is takes us out of these individualized silos that make these megatrends become overly negative and turn them into positive, right? So it gets us actually thinking from a space of how do we all flourish in the present as opposed to just compete with one another, which is that competing with one another, that like free market on overdrive, which is a natural manifestation of the past 400 years, how do we start to turn that? So we start thinking about kind of, instead of living an extractive life, so we see each other as things to extract from, and one that's more regenerative and building towards features that we want. And I think that within the book, that's in many ways what those exercises are meant to kind of cultivate, kind of when we think about the gardening metaphor again, is living like that. Well, listening to what you just said, my mind went right to Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth. Mm -hmm. And if the listener hasn't read that book, it is to me, one of the most important reads you can do because in it, he lays out that many of these religions that are here today, whether it's Buddhism, Muslim, Judaism, Christianity, Catholicism, they were all these frameworks that were introduced to guide society around them. And as he alludes to, and this was written back, I think in the late seventies, early eighties, we haven't had a new framework in thousands of years. Yeah. And so because of that, no one can relate to the frameworks that are here today because they were built for people thousands of years ago. And so I think you're really on to something here with this framework that you're discussing. And it doesn't have to be a religious framework. And yeah. in fact, if you look at the growing populations, less and less in them, are following theology. And I think it's because these theology that's out there is becoming something that they can't comprehend or doesn't. Or relate to. They were frameworks that were developed for a time that we are no longer necessarily in. Long path is kind of a, a framework bespoke to this moment. But to your point, it's not religious. It's not theological. It's very secular. It's interesting. I've been in conversations over the past couple of weeks with rabbis and priests and imams who've all said the same thing because I've given them advanced copies and they're like, this is great. I can actually take this long path framework and use it to kind of co-innovate the framework that I've been using that's thousands of years old. So long path is in, it can be a standalone framework, but it can also be one that can be kind of incorporated to different kind of religious practices. I'm not making an argument that it's supposed to replace anything, but it's almost like scaffolding for however you're thinking right now that in many ways kind of amplifies your empathy and your ability to kind of navigate this moment. And you're right, look, part of what happened as we are moving out of this kind of this 400 years that we've been in is, and I talked about this earlier, when we kind of when, when, by the way, very much focus on science and still am. So let's, what happened was when we decided that God was dead and we kind of eradicated the mystery that we got from religion in terms of giving us bigger ideas and kind of meta and answering meta existential questions, we created, and we basically killed God in that sense, we created a God-shaped hole in our life. And 
that hole is very specific. It's almost like a lock in a certain sense. And to your point, one of the megatrends that we have at Long Path is the rise of spiritual, but not religious as kind of a larger cohort. And so what we have to do as a society is we have to figure out how do we fill not that hole with a new God or a new religion, but recognize that there is an intrinsic longing for something bigger than ourselves in our own lives. I'm still a practicing Jew, but like some people don't necessarily still practice religions and they're looking for a framework to connect into something that isn't theological. I'm not saying long path is it. What I'm saying is as a society, we have to start thinking about moving forward into the future in a way that meets our existential needs beyond just the overt secular. And so long path as a mindset is not an attempt to fill that hole, but it's an attempt to get people thinking more seriously about what is it that they need to become more connected, not just to their own life, but to those that came before and those that will be coming after. Um, And so I think you're right. Joseph Campbell kind of gets at the bespokeness of those old frameworks. And at the same time, we have to recognize that we need new ones and and many new ones if we're going to navigate this moment. Yeah, what's interesting uh, in the book I've got coming out, I've got another chapter that's the five plateaus on the journey to becoming passion struck. And there's so many overlaps between becoming passion struck and long path. And the highest level, I don't call it passion struck. I call it a term I've created called a creative amplifier. Mm. And it coincides with chapter four of your book. And it's really, how do you learn to flex our future capacity through creativity? Mm -hmm. And I think you're thinking the exact same thing. So I wanted you to kind of discuss that through the lens of what happens over this next period of time that we're in will decide the fate of the entire species by the choices that we are making right now. Yeah. So what I talk about in the book is this term, and I, and I referenced early on about my mom was kind of studied under Buckminster Fuller for a while. And so Buckminster Fuller was asked by the U.S. Navy uh, in World War II to help it with the challenge. And the challenge was that as the ships were getting larger, become it became more and more difficult to actually steer them because you needed these massive rudders for these quarter mile long cargo ships. But that required was a whole bunch of hydraulics that could no longer fit in the ship. So they were now limited by how big they could make the ship because of the rudder on the back. They couldn't mechanically make it work. He came up with this idea called the trim tab, which was literally... Instead of having a 20-foot rudder, you could now have, let's say, an eight-foot rudder, but to turn it, you attach just like a four-inch piece of metal at the very end, which was the trim tab. And so by making, by just shifting this four-inch piece of metal at the end of the rudder, it created a negative pressure gradient that would turn the entire rudder itself. So you no longer needed massive hydraulics for the big rudder. You just needed a little bit to turn that small thing, uh, that, that trim tab. And so Buckminster Fuller believed in the power of trim tab so much that on his tombstone, he wrote, call me trim tab, which meant that in our lives, the actions that we take, even if they are seemingly small, when they reverberate over time, they can actually have massive dramatic impacts and effects. And so this moment that we are in, 2022, we are looking at issues obviously around climate change, but also around artificial intelligence and bioengineering, kind of the big three. And obviously there's 
loss of biodiversity and a whole host of other wicked problems we're looking at. But really, the three decision points around climate change, what we do or don't do, AI, what we do, do or don't do, and bioengineering will have reverberations for decades, if not hundreds or thousands of years. And so the decisions that we make right now at these macro are unbelievably huge. Now, I talk about that in the book, but I think what you're getting at is also the next step down, which are the actions that we take at the trim tab level that John, that Ari, that our listeners take, that while they may seem small, how we interact with people, how we are in meetings, the little things that we do in aggregate, as those happen across millions, if not hundreds of millions, of obviously billions of people, those will actually shift and change the future. So those first three examples were these kind of big external megatrend decision points that we have to make. And that's going to be about how we consume and how we vote and those kind of actions we take. But I'm making the argument in the book that it's also the how we live our life with intentionality towards ourselves and future generations that in aggregate, so if you think about the millions and billions of trim tabs, which are us as individuals, those will have massive knock-on reverberation effects for the next hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so we have to be very creative about how we do that in terms of, I'm not talking about necessarily organizing the billions of us into a massive trim tab, but how we decide to live our moment-to-moment life with that intentionality will dictate the ultra-long-term for our species. I don't know how I could possibly say that any better. I think that was great. And I also liked in your TED Talk, which I encourage any listener to watch, it's got over two and a half million views. You talk about the need for moral evolution to be as prevalent in our mindset as technology evolution, because it's going to impact a sentence, as you just said, thousands of years from now. So the listener has heard a lot about this topic all today. What is the payoff for them for planning for a future they won't be around to see? And look, we're, you know, it, it, there's the, the, the payoff. So there's there's two payoffs. There's the payoff that you won't be around to see, right? So then, so what's what is that payoff? If if the question we're asking ourselves, and we've continuously been asking ourselves for thousands of years, is who am I and why am I here? And if you want to answer that question solely for your own life, then there are a set of decisions that you can make and that, to be honest, most people make. If you want to see yourself as part of something bigger, what I call in the book, the project, which is really kind of homo sapiens over the next several thousands of years, the trillions of us to come. If you want to see yourself as part of that and taking actions on their behalf, what ends up happening is you get immediate payoff in the present. So this is a little bit of a kind of a, a look behind the curtain of long path. Because when you start doing that and you start viewing your decisions through that strategic filter, what ends up happening is, and we I've seen this in my own life, I've seen this in people who read the book and have been kind of practicing the long path mindset for a while, is a decrease in the anxiety, in the tension of living a life that now has purpose for something bigger than yourself. And so the immediate payoff of making decisions for future John, future Ari, future generations, is that you are now finding that the things that you do and the interactions that you have with yourself, your own inner voice, with other humans, the things that you consume, the ways that you vote are no longer just about you. And what that means is you're no longer alone. 
right? The kind of the, the underlying dread of the moment is loneliness. And by the way, you can be lonely in a room of a hundred people, but what actually making decisions with the intentions of future generations is you're no longer alone because you're no longer alone temporally across time. You see yourself as part of this chain with those that came before us for thousands of years and those that will come after us for thousands of years. And if you start seeing your day-to-day life like that, the immediate payoff is you are now connected to something bigger than yourself. And I will argue that we have been missing that for a while in society because we have been told it's all about John. It's all about Ari. Buy this, do this. It's you, you, you. And that leads to a very kind of isolated way of viewing the world because it all becomes about the ego and the kind of that you are the most important thing that has ever existed and that should ever exist. Look, there's a biological reason and imperative for that, for genetic fitness, but man, it doesn't help you sleep well at night. But doing and thinking like this starts to kind of open up a different way of viewing yourself and your actions and that existential dread that kind of hangs all over us. I think you start to see that kind of decreased when you're living and thinking this way. Okay. And Ari, I just have one question left for you. And that is, if there's one thing you wanted a reader to take away from your book, what would it be? That you're a part of something much bigger than just yourself. And when you recognize that you start making decisions differently and you start, to be honest, living a much happier life. Okay. And if the listener wanted to get in contact with you or understand more about what you're doing, what are some ways they can do that? And I'll Uh, put it in the show notes. You can go to longpath.org. You can sign up for our newsletter. We're going to start actually having more live events as we get through this latest variant. We were doing that before COVID. We're going to start doing them around the country, around the world. And if you're on social, R-A-W at Instagram will be kind of where you'll see updated things and you can kind of connect. You can connect through Instagram or through the website. Okay. Well, Ari, thank you so much for sharing your incredible new book with us. Congratulations on its launch and hope to stay in touch. We will. Thank you so much, John. I absolutely love that interview. What a great one it was with Ari Wallach. And I wanted to thank Ari, Dalen Miller, and Harper One for the honor and privilege of having him here on the Passion Struck Podcast. Links to all things Ari will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you buy any of the books from the authors that we feature on the podcast. Any proceed goes to supporting the show. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles, where we now have over 370 of them. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I'm at John R. Miles, both on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also reach me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. And my biggest advice to you is go out and build yours before you need it. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with Alan Stein Jr., who is an experienced keynote speaker and author of the books, Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best, and Sustain Your Game, High performance keys to managing stress, avoid stagnation, and beat burnout. The one thing I've noticed among all high performers is they have a very strong reverence and respect for the fundamentals of their craft, the building blocks, the basics. They don't try to skip steps. Working on mastery of the basics toward in the unseen hours is something that they do consistently every single day of their life. A certain level of motivation is certainly important, but it's been my experience, even in my own personal life, that motivation is fleeting. 
It's like any other emotion. I mean, there's some times where I feel highly motivated and there's other times where I don't. I want to make sure that I'm showing up as my best self as consistently as possible. So if I'm only showing up as my best self or I'm only doing what I need to do when I feel like it or when it's convenient or when I'm feeling motivated, then my performance is going to be like a roller coaster. The fee for this show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful. If you know someone who would be interested in long path thinking and many of the concepts and discussions that we went into today, definitely share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give this show is sharing it with those that you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck.